and we're recording hello everyone how's it going today martin are you feeling hey. spooky this week oh yeah feeling real spooky you know this time of year always does something to me and uh i tell you what i can't really explain it uh well in words but i love i like i like october because it's a spooky season, but also um, the movie ha- or the Halloween franchise, film franchise, film franchise. Say that three times fast. Okay. But uh, oh. yeah, I like you- uh, whenever Halloween comes around, October comes around. Um, I love watching Halloween, Halloween two. Uh, the 1978 version and the 1981 version, and I love watching the new, the newer Halloween movies. Um, they always do something to me. I don't know. I'm a huge, huge fan of the cinematography of movies, and I like that atmosphere. And I also like the stalking, hawking uh, figure of Michael Myers. There's something otherworldly about it. Do you like when the music goes? Why, yes, I do. Um, does it send shivers down your spine? No, but it it puts me in a trance, kind of like what we're going to be talking about today, you know, when those so when those supposed witches were put into a trance. That's what that does to me. That's right, folks. This is going to be our Halloween episode. Yep, we're, we're taking a break from Texas. We're going back in time, though. We're actually going to be covering some familiar ground, in fact, if you have yeah. listened to our episodes about the history of the Puritans. We talking about the Salem Witch Trials. Yes. Ooh, spooky. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the Puritans, but we're going to switch gears and more so and talk about puritanical beliefs. Oh, puritanical. yeah. I'm looking that up because I don't know if that's a word, but that sounds like an awesome word. Pure puritanical, yeah, that's a word. All right, it's a it's a funny way of just saying puritan. <laughs> so yeah, what kind of puritanical beliefs are we talking about on this spooky? Episode? Well, we're going to talk about their obsession with the devil, with the boogeyman. Oh yeah, or boogie women, because a lot of this will be misogynist as well. Yeah. Now, the funny thing is, having spoken about my Christian upbringing before, I can actually sympathize with the mentality of always being afraid that the devil is literally everywhere. You know, he's an Mm. omnipresent enemy. And not just the devil, but like demons and other evil forces. Well, that, that still affects me today. Like, uh... Man, I will not screw around with the Ouija board. I will not go anywhere near anything occult of the occult. Um, And I mean, that kind of makes sense for my religious beliefs because I'm agnostic. So that doesn't mean that I don't think it's real. That also doesn't mean that I think it's real. But anyway, that that, my uh, my disdain and my... um, loathsomeness for the occult and all that comes from my christian upbringing because it's scary shit man it is scary scarier than the mf right 
um, because possessions and you're alone at night and there's a bump in the night, you know, it's a lot more, it's scary. Spooky. Like, you know, when the dog farts and he doesn't know where it came from and he wakes himself up. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's That reminds me of Family Guy. It's actually something my mom's dog does. He will, like, fart in his sleep and he'll be, like, frightened. He'll just jump up and, like, bark. <laughs> it's, like, the stupidest thing. But funny. It's funny, yeah. Um, But it is... If you grew up, you know, with, I think, even just the general idea of a devil and his minions yeah. or whatever... It, I think it's very understandable to enter this paranoid mindset almost. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas now I'm like, if you point to me at a house with spooky ghosts and demons, I'm probably going to try my best to annoy them. <laughs> like, I do not actually believe ghosts and demons fucking exist. Uh, however, the idea is fun to me now. And... Nothing is more amusing than annoying an incorporeal entity. Just pissing it off. Well, shit. I don't know about, man, but I don't know about you, but there's something wrong with my head, man. I I think I got, like, some type of schizotypal personality. I don't think that's what, I don't think that's what that is. I think. No. I, yeah. th I think you might have more, uh, uh. Maybe I'm, like, more skeptical about it, or... No, I think it's more like I actively disbelieve more so than you, I think. Like, I'm... I am more willing to make a positive claim about the non-existence of spooky, scary entities. See, I don't think... I, I wouldn't, because you, you can't prove it or disprove it, so... I know, but at the same yeah. time, I'm more convinced that the not is the case in terms of reality well let that be a lesson though for everybody out there if your beliefs aren't falsifiable then they're unreasonable maybe we should do a special episode where good old cornbread goes into a cemetery and just makes an ass out of himself well not a cemetery that would be disrespectful a yeah, haunted house disrespectful. a haunted house and making myself well you can ass. go there alone <laughs> what you don't want to join me it could be fun uh, what what if I get scared and I I need you're something? You're the one who went in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, you know, what if I'm like, what if something you know pops out of like a closet and dances like a a scare like a scary skeleton? Oh man, one of my favorite songs, the great Bobby Womack. If you think you're lonely tonight, he has this lyric. He has these lyrics in the songs. When skeletons come out of the closet and chase you all around your room. What? <laughs> I mean, he doesn't mean it literally. It's not a scary song. He's trying to say, look, girl, if you think you're lonely tonight, if you think you're lonely now, just wait until tonight. So he's basically saying you're going to be even lonely <laughs> when skeletons come out of your closet and chase you all around your room. <laughs> I love that. Oh, oh yeah. I love Bug Womack, man. He's an underrated soul brother. Honestly, like, this time of the year makes me want to play Diablo 2. 
Oh, hell yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Me, well, for me, it's Majora's Mask. This is Legend of Zelda in Nintendo 64 because that's the first time I played it. And I'm in my head, in my mind, I have that imprinted in my mind to think, oh, man, this reminds me of Fall of oh. Autumn. Oh, dude, I was too afraid of Majora's Mask to actually play it. As oh, you're afraid of something for once. As a child, yes. Yeah. Like, well, that, that set, dude, Nintendo 64 Zelda guys look creepy as hell. Oh, yeah, like the the, the walker zombie dude thing. Not even that, just the regular, like, civilians, man. Oh, yeah, they like, look unholy. and stuff. Hello. <laughs> like, those chickens are the worst, though. Like, if you attack them too many times, they just peck you to death. <laughs> Yeah, those zombies in, in in the Nintendo 64 games of Zelda 2, I'm like, wh why are there zombies around? What the hell? See, as a kid, those scared me. But the thing yeah, about I can see why, yeah. But the thing about Majora's Mask that scared me, and this was because partly of my like fear of the apocalypse and whatnot, was like the whole idea oh. of the moon crashing down. Yeah, and you had three days to yeah. Yeah, that scared the. Sh Shit oh, yeah. <laughs> out of me. I I was I still have not played Majora's Mask, not because I'm afraid of it anymore, but just because I you know, I never really cared about the Legend of Zelda. What? It, it, it's funny to me because like the older I get, the more scared I am of real stuff. Um, it, yeah. Like I'm afraid of climate change and Alzheimer's yeah, and hell shit. Yeah. And. Uh, Man, I was just watching this video from um, Intellectual Media. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yesterday? Was it a Black Dude, History of Halloween? No, no, that was pretty cool. I didn't even know. That was pretty cool, too. I watched that. But uh, it was at work when I was, you know, doing compost and feeding America, you know, giving food to the poor. Um, but after I watched the Halloween one, and by the way, that Halloween one was very interesting, too. I didn't know anything about, like, Hanks. Mm -hmm. But uh, but after I watched that one, I watched one uh, that said, uh, well, let me go ahead. It had to do with rape culture. Oh, check this out, dude. This is the. F oh yeah. Oh boy. Oh boy. Hold on. Let me let me get there. Let me. It says. Uh, oh yeah yeah. Here we go. Let me look. Cause I want to get the actual title of this video. Cause this is this. This scared me. This disturbed me. This made me. This made me. Uh, very angry. Very angry. Um, let's see. The video is called. Let me see. Sort by oldest to newest. It is called. It came up right after the uh, the Halloween one, but it wasn't in order. Um. There it is. There it is. It it's called Boosie, Black Boys and Rape Culture. Oh, I, I've watched that one before. Oh, you have? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. God damn, Megan. Did you... Oh, goodness gracious. Like, I did not know that there was such open child abuse. Neither did I. It was... Like, did that disturb you? Yeah, especially... It wasn't, like, that part where... It's not Boosie. I think it's somebody else. Some other dude. And was he's, it Little Wayne? He's talking about, like, bringing his nephew to, like, was it a brothel or something? To make... No, that was Bootsy, I think. Oh, Bootsy, yeah. Maybe it was, so I don't know. Um, but he was talking about, it was either his nephew or his son. Um, I think it was his son. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently they took him somewhere, and I think she was like a sex worker or something. I don't know if it was at a brothel or not, but... Yeah, and this kid was like... He was young. He was a minor. No, I think Mabusi took his nephew, his son, and himself, and he paid some chick... Oh, God. Tri- all right. First of all, trigger warning, people. All right. Big there we go. trigger warning. We're talking about a teen. Uh, we're talking about a newly teenage boy. All right. Yeah. So this fucking idiot. I'm sorry for my language, but he's a fucking idiot. And he's being prison again. Child abuse. This fucking idiot. Paid some uh, a grown ass woman, a grown woman to give his nephew, his son, and himself oral sex. Yeah. Keep in mind, these are pre- these are newly teenage boys. That's child abuse. That is the exact same behavior that I've learned learning about that I learned when learning about cults, about how the cult le- cult, cult leaders, the leaders of the cults would groom children. That's the very same thing they would do. I mean, this is child abuse. And how do we know it? This isn't alleged because that asshole, that Ad- idiot himself. Admitted it. Admitted it on some social media platform. What was that, Instagram? I don't know, but he talked about it, though, right? I think he was I think no, he he talked about it. in interviews, right? Homophobic too. He's like, yeah, that's what you got to do, man. We got to tra- treat, raise him right. Very homophobic person, too. Very homophobic. It was fucking awful. Yeah, it's like, what? Oh, my f- God. Fuck, dude. But yeah, Go and I and you know and I look at people like like Michael Myers and shit, and I'm like, you know what? He's fucking worse than Michael Myers. At least Michael Myers doesn't abuse children; he just kills people. Yeah. <laughs> he, <laughs> Michael mean, Myers. Michael Myers doesn't promote homophobia either. And, and look at this. And another trigger warning too. Uh, she also talks about in the video. About Little Wayne, Little Wayne, when he was 11 years old, uh, Little Wayne talks about being raped by a 14 year old. Now, uh, yeah, yeah. What made this all? What made this disturbing? Not only was it rape, but what made it all the more disturbing, even more disturbing, is the fact that um, he was in a room with a grown ass man, with grown ass men, and the grown ass men actually brought the 14 year old girl in there and had him had and watched as she gave oral sex to the 11 year old boy i feel like there's definitely a victim perpetrator cycle at work here yeah yeah where Um, it doesn't justify the behavior by any means but it perhaps helps explain it um every case is different obviously it's yeah it's fucking rough it it, it, that's it floored me when I learned about this stuff. Floored me. And and in this episode, we're gonna talk about um. We're gonna talk about teenage girls being uh, accused of witchcraft, and we're gonna talk about people dying. And I'm thinking to myself, this modern day, it's out of control, man. Today, I. I mean. I would say, I mean, if you're talking about, like, mass hysteria, for example, I mean, oh, totally, but I may not exactly be picking up on your meaning here. I'm sorry, I just, 
it's hard for me to describe how I feel, but I, how disturbed I am. It's, it, man, because my, my viewpoint, my I look at it from the perspective of, well, where else have I heard these kind of stories? And where else have I heard these stories is, oh, I've heard these stories from cults, you know, the destructive cults. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is the, literally the same exact behavior and age as what these cult leaders groom children for. Yeah. Literally. You know, like Warren Jeffs of the uh, Warren Jeffs, yeah, fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Yeah, and, uh, uh, David Berg from the People of God or whatever. Dave or Children of God. Children of God, yeah. Um, I can't believe yeah. I said I don't want to say a coward's name in my rap. Yeah, <laughs> God or like David Koresh. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Same exact situation. Same, same. It's the same. Damn. I'm, but I'm like, why aren't these people in prison? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like you openly admitted to child abuse and you're not in prison. No shit. It's like, <laughs> and this guy's fucking fucked up head. He thinks he's just doing something normal or good for his yeah. kid. But it's like, no, you are abusing your child. Yeah. And like you said, a victim perpetrating, uh, what, what, what did you call it? Uh, per- uh, the victim perpetrator cycle. Let me get the example okay, yeah. for you. Sorry, y'all, for getting so deep in here. But, uh, you know, I think the real scary things out there aren't ghosts or demons. It's human beings. Yeah. Human, human beings. Human beings can be monstrous. Absolutely. And the way I see it, I hate human beings. Sorry. <laughs> I think people are the S word. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I think people are see you next Tuesdays. All right. So <laughs> sorry. Like the majority of people, you're cool. Our listeners are cool. But the vast majority of people out there are just the S word. You know? Yeah, they just they're shit. That's the way I feel. They're shitty. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people suck. Human I'm not like misanthropic or anything like that. Oh, I am. I'll, I'll admit to that. <laughs> I yeah, I I do reject misanthropy, but I will say however that like human beings are still animals at the end of the day. And although we are accountable for our actions, like every one of us has some kind of like impulse but some of us have worse impulses than others yeah and like some of us like on the mile end of things you know we can be vindictive um like i'm a very i'm a pretty vindictive guy but at the oh, same yeah. time i don't have really? any impulse oh fuck yeah i'm i'm like oh. <laughs> I, I am a creature of spite i'm spite bread i get to see that but not violently so no yeah yeah, but I also don't have, like, the impulse or desire to, like, harm children. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. I the don't, innocent people, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't understand what it's like to have that kind of mind that yeah. precludes you to engage in that behavior. Like, I don't know. Like, the animal kingdom is a pretty fucked up, pretty fucked up, uh 
bunch of critters. And humans are unfortunately included in the... Humans are the most. Yeah, like, what other creature is more likely to kill you other than another human being? Like, the only other thing that is most likely to kill you other than another human being is probably, like, a microorganism. Oh, yeah, yeah. Other than that, but, like... But, I mean, you look at, like, the beauty of this dog over here, right? He's so innocent. He's so sweet. He's so loving, right? You look into his eyes and you see love. I look in human beings' eyes and I see nothing. Empty. (laughs) Nothing? And I'm a, and I'll say it right now. I am a superior form of man. I am a superior human being. Oh, really? The vast majority of people out there. Hell yeah, man. Damn. Preach it. You heard I it am... here, folks. Martin, <laughs> thinks, right. Martin thinks he's superior to you. <laughs> I don't think I'm superior to you because of birth or anything. I don't believe. I think intrinsically we're all equal no matter what. But I think our actions, right, our morality separates the wheat from the chaff. And I happen to be cream of the crop. The most moral <laughs> of men. In this I don't pod- know about that. <laughs> and it, the most moral of men is actually a co-host of this podcast, everybody. <laughs> I'm up there with Jesus and the Buddha, baby, Siddhartha Gautama. Oh, damn. <laughs> putting yourself on quite a pedestal are we come on man i am the shit the s-h-i-t baby if you say so maybe we'll have a poll maybe we'll have like a poll on spotify or twitter (laughs) is martin the the, most comparable to jesus and the buddha wow (laughs) and you think i'm joking but i'm 100 honest i'm just being honest well, I will say this. Although I, I get so disturbed, disturbed when I see innocent people, children being hurt, man, that's not right. We shouldn't do that to our fellow human beings. And unfortunately, folks, given the nature of the Salem witch trials, we're going to be um, covering quite a bit of innocent people, including children. Yeah, uh, man. Being accused of witchcraft, um, which is often punishable by death. What? What? Oh, hey, it's all right, buddy. I'm just, I'm just going off. I'm sorry. He's scared. He's no, he wasn't scared. He just, he lived his head like, what the hell are you talking about, man? <laughs> what are you talking about? Being up there you with Jesus? They look at you and then they turn their head, <laughs> just confused by the noises yeah. you're making from your mouth hole. Yeah. Mm mm mm. So, do you actually want to get right into this stuff? Because there's a lot. As as we have discovered, there's oh yeah, a lot of ground to cover. Nor- no, wait. Uh, did you want to save your Dune thoughts for later? Um, hmm. Okay, you know what? Because we were talking about uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune earlier. So, do you want to hear my thoughts about Dune? I watched it over the Sure, weekend. and I'm going to watch it this uh, weekend. Okay, so there may or may not be spoilers, folks. Um, you have been warned. Well, if you read the book. <laughs> if you've read yeah. the book, there's nothing to spoil. However, if you have not read the book, um, I'm going to say up front, 
you're not you're probably not going to understand exactly what's going on in this movie um i mean i've talked to some people who have not read the book and they kind of did but there's also like a lot of missing context and if you're making a movie of an adaptation of a book or if you actually if you're just making any movie period you are responsible for whether your audience can understand fully what is happening in your story and if you don't do that then that is a shortcoming in your storytelling so one of the the things about dune the book is that it is probably one of the best examples of world building you're probably ever going to come across in like modern literature world how about galactic building it oh yeah that's it's (laughs) it's galactic scale building but for the most part for you english majors out there you know what i mean um so because dune is such a dense i don't even like to use the word dense because i think that gets the wrong impression it's rich it is rich in world building and subplots, and they all intertwine in this beautiful, uh, th- not thread, but whatever you call, I guess you could say like a textile almost of a story. So that said, I think Denis Villeneuve's Dune, and this is going to be an unpopular opinion for uh, Dune fans out there, Oh, fails on a few fronts. That I think harm its enjoyability. Now, I I enjoyed it. Ultimately, I did enjoy watching it. All, almost three hours of it. It's it's fucking long. Um, It should be. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, I do realize that even that almost three hour runtime isn't enough to capture the richness of the world building and story of dune um now you can tell a story and it can still be dune and it can be diluted or it can be a different story of dune because at the end of the day it's an adaptation it doesn't have to be like a carbon copy oh yeah of course of the book um but my first criticism as i kind of mentioned earlier is that and perhaps this is because of just the medium of film. Because of that limited runtime, I don't think it succeeds in getting a general audience to understand fully what's happening in the story. Oh, okay. So. That, well, that was the 1984 movie as well. Oh, that was another. Yeah, that was a whole mess, but. The thing about the 1984 one is that, like, looking back, if you know it's going to be a hot mess, you can still fully enjoy it, right? Um, so, yeah, with that said, so Denny Villeneuve's Doom, in my opinion, doesn't succeed in getting the general audience to fully grasp what is happening in the story. So I brought with me a friend who has never read Dune, never watched any of the Dune movies or the miniseries for that matter. So completely new to the Dune universe. So one of the first things I was hoping that this movie would do 
and what I was judging it on was, does it like onboard that general audience to understanding what's going on, at least on par that a Dune fan would? You know what I mean? No, yeah. So like in the film, um, there's this, it kind of starts on Caladan, if I remember. Yeah, it starts in Caladan. Ah, the water planet. The water planet of oh, yeah. of House Atreides. So, um, all of humanity uh, has essentially colonized the stars. This is a society that's far flung in the future by like 10,000 years or something. Um, but it's oddly, and in many ways, it's actually a primitive society. Because it is extremely feudalistic. So, humanity is essentially governed in this empire called the Imperium, which, as I said before, is very feudal. So, the governing of planets and colonies is typically done by noble houses. So, that's interesting because if you think of feudalism, you think of, well, the feudal lords had land and a castle, so to speak. Yeah. But these feudal lords have entire planets. Yeah. So part of feudalism is that you essentially have a fief, right? And you typically might serve, like, somebody who's higher than you on, like, the on the social chain. You know, like, a duke would be subservient to, like, a king or whatever. So in this way, planets are fiefs, essentially. They are estates, or their their private property of of a uh, ruling house. So Caladan is one of those planets, and it's the home planet of the Atreides family. And Paul Atreides is the heir to essentially his family title. Um, his father is a guy named Duke Leto, and Duke Leto receives a appointment to governor perhaps the most important plant in the known universe uh, called Arrakis or just Dune. So Dune is, uh, the planet's name is, implies, is that it's a desert world, uh, which you can just tell just by looking at like the promotional art that's the case. So anyway, uh, he his father, Duke Lido, receives his appointment from the emperor and he and his family are going to be the ones governing the planet Dune. So yeah. Dune, or Arrakis as it's normally called in the story, is governed by a rival family called House Harkonnen. And they are a very brutal lot. They're, they're all for exploitation. And uh, they practice slavery. They are sexual very abuse. They are very, yeah, sexual abuse. But that's not yeah. actually that's actually not discussed in the movie. Um, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, and there and at least I'm talking about the movie at this point. Um, oh, okay. Another thing I've noticed too, they're all bald. They're all bald white guys. Everyone, yeah, no eyebrows. Huh? No eyebrows. Yeah, no eyebrows. I, yeah, no hair on their head. Nothing. They bald. Everybody bald. No facial That makes hair. sense if you consider that their home planet is an industrial shithole. Gady Prime, yeah, <laughs> is the home world of the Harkonnens, even though they are the ones currently governing Arrakis, overseeing the... Uh, <laughs> so they oversee 
the the spice mining operations on the planet. So spice is like the most valuable resource in the known universe. It can be used for uh, increasing human lifespans. It can be mm -hmm. used. It's highly important for space travel too. Um, essentially, faster than light space travel. So Ooh. not only is it like a geriatric substance, it's also it's also like necessary for transportation across the galaxy. Um, without it, faster than light travel becomes impossible, and space travel slows to like an impossible crawl. Like it would take tens of thousands of years to reach galaxies and or I mean not just galaxies, but like planets and solar systems and stuff. So it's super, super necessary for running all human affairs. Um, and Arrakis is important because it's the only planet where spice is produced. So the movie kind of makes that stuff pretty clear. Yeah, because um, it comes from the sandworms there. Right. So, like, my friend who I brought was able to get that much out of it. Um, so Paul is eventually brought to be tested. Um, so Paul is played by Timothy Chalamet, and his mother, the Lady Jessica, is played by Rebecca Ferguson. And... Mm. The order which his mother belongs to, I don't think it's really well talked about or explained. Oh, they what, don't explain. Oh. They sort of do. Um, if you don't know anything about Dune, you just kind oh. of think of the order. So the Lady Jessica belongs to a all-woman order called the Bene oh. Gesserit. Yo, hold on, hold on, lady. So, so, not to cut you off, but, so if you ever read Dune, <laughs> this is crazy, because if you ever read Dune, all of this stuff that you say is not really explained in the book, there's not a lot of real heavy exposition, but the author actually created an appendix, his own encyclopedia in the back of the book. So when you're reading Dune, you constantly, it, you hear the term like Bene Gesserit, Bene Gesserit, whatever. And you're like, what is that? So you go to the back of the book and you're like, oh, so this is what it means. Yeah. Which, it's, it's that kind of book. <laughs> like normally I might be critical of something like that in terms of storytelling and a book. But yeah. you know what? That is actually super useful. Because yeah. <laughs> Dune has a lot of very unique terminology to it. Yes. Um, Which is uh, Muslim-based, too. It's heavily yeah. based off of Islam. Yeah. Um, a lot of it is in Arabic, too. So uh, the movie doesn't do a good job at all explaining oh. a lot of the terminology. So, like, the Bene Gesserit are kind of... Like, if you're not familiar with the story you might get the impression that the Bene Gesserit is this mysterious order of women. And they apparently control, and this is, you know, true to the story. They manipulate human affairs, typically by manipulating religion across the galaxy. It's like uh, a bunch of Hillary Clintons. It's a bunch of Hillary Clintons <laughs> with superpowers, essentially. <laughs> Um, <laughs> like, and people, and they do this in the movie too, like, people do not, tr somehow, people trust the Bene Gesserit with, like, very high positions in government, 
and other roles in society. But well, no, they, but nobody trusts the Bene Gesserit for some reason. Well, I mean, they, they're persuasive, though. They got what's called the voice. Yeah, it's a superpower that you can learn. Literally. <laughs> yeah, you can just yeah. practice and learn it, and you can use the voice to command. Well, and, and they do this quite a bit in the movie. It's sort of like the Jedi, right? When the Jedi mind tricks? Yeah, except it's more like just commanding somebody, using the right tone of pitch in your voice. <laughs> this um, is crazy. <laughs> so, like, and this is perhaps really fitting for this episode. Everyone considers the Bene Gesserit to be witches. They'll just... <laughs> Like when a ben, when a Bene Gesserit shows up, they're like this Bene Gesserit witch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they're very mysterious. They're not well trusted. They're like Freemasons, except they're also like nuns at the same time. Well, if you think about it, they're kind of like what what uh, conspiracy theorists call the Illuminati. Yeah, except they're, they're the Illuminati. They're like if the Illuminati were like an order of nuns at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nuns like, who also have, can have sex to get their own political uh, way, will or whatever or way. Right. So, yeah, yeah, they have a lot of sway politically yeah. in the Dune universe. And in the movie, it's kind of explained what they're what they do, but not very much. Um, I would say maybe like a quarter of what the Bene Gesserit are is revealed to the audience in the movie. Um, okay. So the breeding program, which is very important to the central story, is um, not, I mean, the very basics of it are revealed in the story, but it doesn't really come up much, and some of the details are left out, and it's probably for the sake of brevity more than anything. Um, so, like, yeah. When does this movie end, though? win what part of the first dune book so if you're familiar with the dune book this ends after the death of a character named Jameis and the acceptance of paul and his oh, mother into wow. a, into the really? fremen yeah i thought it'd be when uh oh man i thought it would be when uh harkonnen takes back Ar okay nope huh. nope it's after that um so Ooh. yeah after paul and his mother jessica join up with the Fremen officially. As oh. they, they become part of the tribe, as you know. Um, so, yeah, the breeding program, it's essentially like a eugenics program that's like centuries old. So the, the Bene Gesserit, and it's, it, this is only revealed once. So, like, the term Aquisats Hadarak is used, like, maybe one or two times, and that's it. Um. Sure. So, Equisat's Hadarak is essentially like a superhuman male that can essentially you he can look into the past to like distant what are called ancestral memories. So you can access the memory of all your ancestors, like ever through like human oh, history. That seems like a torture. Yeah. So like because Paul, you know, his family is the Atreides, for example. Um, and if you've, any of you have read the Iliad, you might recognize the name Atreides. So, Martin, I'm going to let you guess. Uh, where does, how does, like, Atreides, you know, what does that remind you of? Oh, Atreus. Uh, the house of, yeah, the house of Atreus. Agamemnon. 
Menelaus, Menelaus. Right. Menelaus. And and the this is it comes up in the second or third books. It's a cursed family, by the way. Yeah. So Paul and you know his future offspring, they are actually related to Agamemnon. So at one point, they actually access his ancestral memories very briefly. Um, but this doesn't happen until like the third book. So that is essentially the superpower of being able to look in the past. But a Kwisatz Haderach can also look into the future too. So not only are they able to divine information from the past, they're also able to see possible future events. So basically like a almost like a time traveler almost, but they don't really travel through time. They just kind of predict time. Like and the Bene Gesserit the I think another important factor that the movie has left out is the fact that the Bene Gesserit actually have half of these powers, right? They are able to access ancestral memories in the book. But they can only access the female line. They can't actually access male lines for some reason. So the Kwisatz Haderach is somebody who can like access any uh, ancestral memory while also being able to predict the future. So this is a very powerful human being that they're trying to create. And the whole point of them trying to create a Kwisatz Haderach is to essentially have him essentially guide the human civilization to a point that they think would be best for all humanity. He essentially would be a puppet, right? And they, they're trying to bring this guy about through this centuries-old eugenics program. Um, so they do mention in the movie that Paul actually... Uh, they think he might be the Kwisatz Haderach, but they don't know. But they do also mention that Paul was not supposed to be born a male. He was supposed to be born a daughter. And then he was supposed to marry, or she, uh, technically, was supposed to marry a Harkonnen male. And then they were supposed to have offspring. And then the Bene Gesserit were hoping that those offspring would be the Kwisatz Haderach. But... Uh, Duke Leto's wife. Well, no, no, not his wife. Uh, concubine. His concubine. That's right. We have those in this story. The concubines are a thing because, you know, feudalism, space feudalism. <laughs> um, yeah. Decides because Duke Leto really, really wants a son. And because the lady Jessica really loves Duke Leto. She gives birth to a son against the orders of the oh, Bene Gesserit. How could she go into her womb and change the, the sex of the baby? They probably It's the far future. They probably have uh. the, the technology to do that. Like, genetic engineering is just something that <laughs> Dune... That's one of the things they have down in Dune, is genetic engineering and cloning and shit. Yeah. Like... Uh. But, yeah, anyway. So... The movie does like a kind of a mediocre job at explaining that thing. Okay. The key concepts that make the story or the plot of the movie make sense. And so there's that criticism. Another criticism I have happens to be like more technical than anything. 
like the audio in this in Dune is not well balanced at all. <laughs> like really, yeah. my friend said differently. Um, I don't know if he and I watched the same movie then. So no, he was. Uh, he said that he was in like a. Uh, he was at the uh, Linux movie theater and that the bass, the full screen. He says you get lost in that world. And uh, what was your thoughts? So audio wise, and I, I bring it up because it actually harms your understanding of the story if you're not familiar Oof. with Dune. So three of the main characters, like whisper half the fucking time and there were times when i'm like like kind of in my seat trying to hear what's going on i'm like what the what are they saying because like Hmm. rebecca ferguson's character is probably the worst offender of this uh where she's just like whispering like paul you might be the one paul paul and it's like what the fuck she's saying and my friend I mean, she's not a native English speaker, speaker, so she's having a fucking harder time than I am. <laughs> like, I'm, a- up, I'm able to make sense of the plot because I've read the fucking book, and that should not be the fucking case. And because, like, if you're introducing key dialogue to help the audience understand the story, and you can't fucking hear it, that's a fail. That's an audio failure. So uh, she does that all- the most throughout the movie. Uh, Timothy Chalamet's character does it a lot too. Where he'd be like. I had a vision of the future. I had a vision of the future. I saw my father. It's it's so fucking irritating. Like, I don't know why they just... I don't know why they went that route. Like, like, could you... Like, speak with your fucking chest. Don't do this fucking whispering stuff in a movie when key information is being conveyed. It's so fucking annoying. And my friend lost out, like, on a third of what is happening. Oh, man. And that legit made me fucking angry. Like, that. and then while they're doing that, you know, like, characters are fucking whispering. Uh, the third offender is actually the Baron, Vladimir Harkonnen, the main bad guy. Where he's not whispering, but his voice is very deep and it's very guttural. Like, mm. it's like a thousand pounds of lard are on his, like, vocal cords. He's talking like this. I promise they will burn. He is obese. Well, here's the thing, though. Like, in the miniseries, the actor who played uh, the Baron Harkonnen... Let me pull him up. Uh, because he was the exact opposite. Ian McNeese, right? His Baron is very flamboyant, but he's also very, like, boisterous and loud. But he's also, like, Shakespearean, too. So, uh, and I remember distinctly from the miniseries where he says, It is then when I, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, will encompass the Duke's doom. Like that, you know. It's very theatrical, but it works. And it's great. It's crisp and it's clear. Whereas Stellan Skarsgård's Baron is like, I've no problem. Kill the It sounds like he's eating a big old fried chicken bucket. 
And not only that, he doesn't actually get a whole lot of screen time. He doesn't really do much. He's, he doesn't oh. actually do a whole lot in that movie. See, that I don't like that because in the book you get the sense that this dude, he's an evil dude and you root for him. You root for him in the book to die. Yeah, but here's I mean, the... He makes his nephew fade, kill uh, kill innocent uh, slave women. He... he the, the Duke, or, I mean, not the Duke, but the Baron Vladimir Herkonen is a bona fide pedophile. Yeah. And the miniseries kind of emphasizes that. He's incestuous. Like, yeah. yep. he gets pleasure from sadism as well. He's a, yeah. he's a morally disgusting character. But the movie not only makes him not do much, the disgust and contempt that you're supposed to feel towards the Baron... Mm-hmm. Is yeah. because he's a fat guy and doing gross stuff. Like, just chilling inside like a vat of black goop for some yeah. fucking reason. Like, they go for, like, visual gross weirdness, but they don't actually talk about why he's an evil guy. Like, yeah. you can you can tell he's evil, but it's not really built up. Like, he's very forgettable almost. It, it's really disappointing. So... And like I said, going back to audio, understand what's happening. Fuck no, you're not gonna understand what's happening. Okay. Um, also, another thing too, they cut out Fade. Fade Rotha. Whoa, they don't have Fade. Nope, he's not in that movie. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh my god. So and for f- those of you who are wondering, if you ever seen the 1984 version of Dune, Fade is played by Sting. Yeah. And if is the Baron's nephew, um, whom whom the Baron also has incestuous feelings for, because he's a yeah, he, yeah. But he's also a pretty important character too, yes. because he's kind of like a, a personal rival to Paul. Oh yeah, yep, yeah. He's like a scheming little shit who is physically fit. He's like the complete opposite of the Baron in a lot of ways, because he's physically yeah. fit. He you know he's young, um, but he's like. He's he's kind of cunning. He's more charismatic and likable than his cousin Raban, who is or his I think he is a brother or cousin, I don't remember. Uh Raban, who's played by Dave Bautista in the movie. Like, Raban is like a big hulking brute, and he's not all that bright. Um, but he's you know, he's very brutal. And that said though, he's not in the fucking movie. Well, he sh- he has to be in the second one, dude. Because Paul and him get into a, a big old fight. They get into a fucking knife fight. Yeah. <laughs> knife fight, yeah. So, here's what I'm predicting in the second movie. They're going to make Paul fight Raban in, like, a, some knife fight oh, in the second movie. No, no. I love Batista. I love him. But I, no. do, I do, too. But I'm like, oh. mm, that's so fucking frustrating. I want to see, like, a young, physically fit young dude take on Timothy Chalamet. I want to see that. Yeah, you know. I want to see them with their shirts off fighting and shit. You want to see a bunch of shirtless Zoomers with (laughs) knives stab each other. (laughs) It's a Zoomer knife fight. (laughs) So. That's good. So. That is good. it, It stumbles a lot. Story-wise, um, it, it drops the ball audio-wise quite a fucking bit. 
Um, because at, at the same time, like, the background music is fucking loud. Like, on the one hand, you have characters whispering, and then after they're done talking, the background music's like, hey, ah, like that. <laughs> um, like nothing? Um, no, I mean, the background, a lot of the back, like, the track is actually really good to this movie. Oh, I will I say it's that. It's Zimmer, yeah. Yeah, it's Hans Zimmer. So, oh, yeah. and it's, it's a very good track. It's just like the, it goes back to the balancing. Like, why is the fucking music so goddamn loud, but the dialogue of the main characters discussing, like, important points of the movie, like, just like, why, 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 are, we, why are we fucking whispering about this? I don't think we should whisper this. You know, the audience is watching and they might need to hear something. Oh, um, boy, you're hot. You're, you're getting hot, man. I'm getting fucking hot. So my final, my final criticism <laughs> of this movie that I can remember off the top of my head is uh, visual. Um, so on the one hand, things in Dune look really, really good. The CGI is really well done. Things are fucking huge <laughs> in Dune. Like spaceships and vehicles are gigantic. Like this movie does scale like great. So that's a good thing it does. On the other hand, it it falls short because it's such a like a poorly saturated movie color-wise. Like it does that thing that is a huge problem in a lot of modern movies I've seen where when they want to be edgy, there's like this kind of grayish filter that dilutes the saturation and color on like fucking everything. Mm. Like when you actually get to Arrakis, the the desert planet, er, like everything's like very grayish white beige. Like everything is. And it's like, and it looks, the color scheme is fucking ugly. (laughs) The choice, like the color saturation in this movie is like really fucking ugly. (laughs) Um, Hmm. And like, why is it that I can boot up a Windows XP and get a better looking picture of a desert from like the wallpaper than I can get from this movie? Like, deserts if you google a fucking picture of a desert right now like like i'm going on google images right now and i'm going to just type in desert first thing i see some bright fucking rich colors some of them you know not super rich in color but still more color and more saturation than the fucking dune movie like that up myself it may it reminds me of like Skyrim but with sand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Huh. Skyrim? What do you mean? Skyrim. You know how Skyrim? Oh yeah, Skyrim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know like how it kinda has like this dull color palette to yeah. it, right? Well yeah. Dune makes that decision to go that route. And it's like you could be like when I envision Dune, or when I read Dune, and it's describing Arrakis, I'm thinking, like, rich, richly colored sand dunes. Like, maybe, like, a cloudy sky at most. But, you know, with... I don't know how to describe it. And that might not necessarily be how 
Dune would exist in the real world because you know it's it's it doesn't really have it's a very dry planet like moisture is it's a very arid world because it's a fucking desert planet um so but that said like if you're going to take like a creative liberty with something you have an opportunity to make it look gorgeous and memorable and dune doesn't do it doesn't do that and it's so disappointing and it sometimes it creates an eyesore in dune like dune's a visually dark movie a lot of the time like it does not make good use of lighting at all um and sometimes it's done for intentional effect but other times it just literally makes my eyes hurt like the time the one point in the movie where you actually get to see a sandworm out of the sand you know moving around revealing its full form or whatever it's yeah. night it's nighttime and you when it's like literally staring down at Paul and Jessica in the desert you can barely fucking make out any details of this thing and that's such a disappointing decision like this is a fucking desert you can illuminate the night sky you know you can mm. usually see unless it's super cloudy you can see the night you can see space from a desert right yeah you should be able to yeah like it's not all just and besides like there's literally two moons and on arrakis right that's like two objects where the light of the sun is going to be reflected and you that should like illuminate the night like there's no good reason for why at that particular juncture anyway in the movie that it should be that fucking dark so on those fronts like introducing the story to a general audience uh the audio issues and the visual stuff i just mentioned i think that's where this movie like falls really short on and it's super fucking disappointing well hopefully it was just the first movie yeah now you might like when you see it yourself you might have like a completely different opinion of me but and that you know that's fine like i said i enjoyed this movie for what it was but i don't think it's a great movie (laughs) i'm just gonna be fucking honest i don't think this movie's that great Well, here's what I want to know. Well, here I'll be disappointed if at the ending of, the, of the, at least the second movie, Paul's not sitting at a desk with a mountain of spice powder, right? And then what Paul does at the end is he puts his face in, in that mountain and just sniffs. He's, <sighs> he's just snorting lines. Snorting. He's snorting that spice powder. And then... The camera gets a shot of his face and his eyes are blue and he's got this big old grin looking like the Joker and he's got all this powder on his face and he looks like he's crazy, like he's possessed. And then he says, Father, the sleeper has awakened. (laughs) You son of a monkey. You totally dropped the ball on that segue. Yeah, I know. 
<laughs> you know, he purposely did it too. The possession line was to say, hey, let's move on to our topic for today. Well, you know what? We're moving on to our topic for today, everybody. Oh, man, that was a cra- I, lay, I had that layup for you, and you dropped it, man. And I did it on purpose, too. You son of a monkey. Ha ha ha. All right. All right. So, no more Dune shit. We're going to talk about spooky shit. We're going to be talking about mass hysteria and witchcraft and religious... Basically, why you should never build a society along a religion. Um, Separation but, church and state. Yeah, why that shit's actually very good. Very um, important. Yeah, but we're going back about, like, what? 300, like, over 300 years. Can you believe that? Oh, let's do the math up in here. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. I'm going to put calc in. So, it is the year of our Lord, Jesus Christ, twenty. 21 and we're going to minus that by 1692 the year of our events 329 years been a fucking long time since we're going to go back and like we said earlier we're actually covering some familiar ground we're going back to colonial massachusetts because we're going to talk about our boys the puritans And we're going to be talking today about the Salem Witch Trials that occurred in 1892 to 1893. Ooh. And, um, yeah, so this, uh, this was quite a journey for us coming with up, up with our sources. We got quite a lot of tabs open up and we're looking to share some stuff with you. Some, uh, some pretty cool stuff, some pretty entertaining stuff and some pretty wild stuff. Oh, yeah. So let's do an introduction out there for those of you who don't remember all the way back from elementary school. What was or were the Salem Witch Trials? All right. Do you want to lead this? Yeah, I can. You're the teacher after all. (laughs) You were like, fucking, do you want to lead this? (laughs) I just talked about you. Yeah, your throat's probably a little dry or something. Mm Mm-mm-mm. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go back 329 years, 329 years to the Salem Witch Trials in Colonial, Massachusetts, the town of Salem. And what was the Salem Witch Trials? So the Salem Witch Trials was a series of hearings and prosecutions of people accused of witchcraft in Colonial, Massachusetts between 1690, between February 1692 in May 1693. So 1692 to 1693. And more than 200 people were accused. 30 were found guilty. 19 of whom were executed by hanging. 14 women and 5 men. And another man was pressed to death. Which means he had a, I guess a, a rock, a heavy rock on his chest. Something uh, like he that. was... Yeah, he was, he was, that's what happened to him, and he was killed for refusing to plead, and at least five people died in jail. So let's go through that number here, because this sounds like a slasher movie. So more than 200 people were accused, 30 were found guilty, 19 were executed by hanging, 14 women, 5 men, 
this is kind of like a slasher movie with all those dead women. And another man was pressed to death. Pressed to death. And at least five people died in jail. Whew. Boy, this is crazy. Wow. Oh, boy. Yeah, I'm actually looking at a picture of uh, the... It's like a drawing, anyway. An illustration of the pressing of one of the victims, Giles Corey. So it's literally like a drawing of... So they're surrounded by Puritans. Uh, Giles Corey is... Looks like he's pressed between two boards. And the board that's on top of him contain is holding up several very large boulders. Ooh. Which are slowly crushing him to death. You know, a very Christian way of... Uh, very Christian thing to do, you know, literally crushing someone slowly to death. Ooh, That's my, my favorite. brother got stoned, and not in a good way, yo. Oh, yeah. Oof. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's the backdrop. What we're going to be doing is looking in primary sources. Um, and just another backdrop. Um, so these Salem witch trials, right? Operative word is trial. So, whatever operative means, I don't know. It sounds old people say it, so it sounds right. All right, so <laughs> in uh, in in this time period, right in 17th century New England, um, the they followed their courts followed English law, and so this legal process involved a number of steps, and each resulted in the issuance of a court record. So these people kept records. And keeping records was mandatory in cases of capital crime. And if you don't know what capital crime is, that's the one for which you die. That's the stuff they kill you for. Heck yeah, they're gonna, yep. And so, how this worked is that a complaint against an individual was followed by a warrant for the arrest of that person. And the constable... Um... Yeah, constable. We don't really use that word today, so I'm looking that mug up. Constable. Not, not in the United States anymore, but... Uh, basically, it was like an officer of the law back then. Yeah. Um, so the constable made the arrest. He is the one who signed his return on the warrant, stating that he had taken the person into custody, usually jail. And then the magistrate then conducted an examination or a preliminary hearing and issued a summons for witnesses to give testimony in court against the defendant. So, yeah, so this is the process that we're going to see. And if the examination found probable cause for the crime, the attorney general then issued an indictment, which was presented to a grand jury for a hearing on the charge in the indictment. Mm. And so... At this stage, the attorney general selected the strongest of the written depositions as well as oral testimony to present to the grand jury. And the purpose of this grand jury bullcrap was to rule whether there was a strong enough evidence that the accused should be put to trial. And if the grand jury said, yeah, the evidence is sufficient, the indictment was classified as what's called a true bill. And the next step was a trial. And that's when the trial happened. Witnesses appeared, presented their evidence, swore it in court. And the clerk of the court marked the depositions and the testimonies used in the trial. If the defendant was acquitted of the trial, 
the indictment was marked ignoramus. What? <laughs> which literally in Latin means we have no knowledge of it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> ignoramus. And if the jury's verdict was guilty, the presiding magistrate pronounced the sentence. Now, all of that, back then, during this time period, back in the day, witchcraft, witchcraft was deemed a capital crime in which you can lose, in which you can die. And in Puritan New England, the sentence was death by hanging. And so the so that's basically the English law and the law of witchcraft or the law against witchcraft. So that's how all this Salem stuff and all these records, because there are a ton of primary sources on this. That's how all they came to be. Whew. Oh, yeah. So, and I got that from oh real quick I got that from Salem.lib.virginia.edu. So nice. So Oof. I think it would also be very helpful to maybe discuss a little bit of like a very short bit about the history of witchcraft. You know why are like why are these people like giving a shit about witchcraft at all? Because these things never appear in a vacuum, right? They usually kind of follow, Absolutely. like, this weird yeah. historical evolution. So, witchcraft has, at this point, particularly in European history, been uh, persecuted for a number of centuries. It's kind of always been a thing, so long, at least, as Christianity has kind of been the dominant religion in oh, Europe. Oh, yeah. Since, you know, as... Anyone raised Christian knows uh, the Bible prohibits witchcraft because it's usually seen as consorting with the forces of Satan and the demonic mm -hmm. um, yep. to practice magic. Uh, so, needless to say, witchcraft has never been particularly viewed favorably by the authorities in Europe. Um, but, however, witch trials, anyway or at least the persecution of witchcraft, kind of start to peter out in Europe around, like, the mid-17th century. But they still kind of find life as Europeans begin to colonize parts of the world, particularly America. Yeah. So, I guess, perhaps in hindsight, you can say, like, the events that lead up to 1692 or 1693 are kind of like a brief outburst of like this hysteria about witchcraft because these were we're talking about the puritans here like it's a worldview where satan is kind of like everywhere yeah. trying to destroy you the forces of the devil are all over and as far as the puritans are concerned as we've kind of read about in previous episodes the puritans kind of view themselves as being a beacon of light in, like, a heathen land. Yeah. So, and there's also, like, a lot of early thinkers who kind of influence views of witchcraft up to this point. Witchcraft, not witchcraft. Witchcraft. Um, <laughs> the witches are literally crapping all over, and that's why they hate women. <laughs> this is it's why Europeans hate witches. There's just a pile of dung, and it's like, ah, these damn witches. Um, yeah, so in 1668, 
a English clergyman and philosopher, a guy named Joseph Glanville, uh, publishes a text called Against Modern Sadducism. Very interesting. Yeah, where are you reading that from? Where are you getting this from? Uh, it's Wikipedia. Oh, you got Okay, yeah, you got Wikipedia. I got the other shows. Like a yeah, but it's actually got. It actually is citing a source here. It's actually citing an essay by Joseph Glanville himself. So, primary source here. Uh, Joseph Glanville claimed that he can actually prove the existence of witches and ghosts of the supernatural realm. Right. So Glanville writes about the denial of the bodily resurrection and of supernatural spirits, which is, you know, a very, very important thing in Christianity, particularly the the resurrection. You know, if at this time you are a true believing Christian, you believe in the second coming of Jesus and the second judgment, which involves a resurrection of sorts, right? Which actually a very funny thing about uh, Joseph Glanville is that he actually was charged by authorities for atheism um, because he got into a controversy with a guy named Robert Cross. Um, and they were, <laughs> arg- I think it was something about, like, er- something had to do with the work of Aristotle. <laughs> um, he attacked the current teaching of medicine, psychic, and in return was attacked by a guy named Henry Stubb, or Stubbs. Uh in a document called The Plus Ultra Reduced to a Non Plus, his views on Aristotle also led to an attack by a guy named Thomas White, a Catholic priest known as Blacklow. Uh, so this guy is a very interesting character, to say the least. Very, yeah. very philosophically minded, but you can see how his document is maybe affecting the public consciousness. Um, so the text that he actually publishes in 1681 is a book entirely about witchcraft. And in Latin, it's called the Sadducimus Triumphatus. And it was published, you know, after his death in England in 1681. So it basically talks about, as I said earlier, the existence of witches and how they interact with like supernatural magic um and it's basically also attacks skepticism towards witches right like this is a guy who is like yo you skeptics are on some bullshit this witchcraft shit is real and he actually compares skeptics to like the sadducees you know from the bible the bible jewish sect um because supposedly they denied the immortality of a human soul so he's also not only inflaming or you know he's not he's making a case for the existence of the supernatural he's also kind of accusing skeptics of faith you know almost of like atheism it feels like um but this book in particular is actually very important because it influences a character named cotton mather who was a oh, key yeah. figure in the English witch trials. So it influenced him in what was called his discourse on witchcraft. And it essentially influenced his worldview and approach to the whole subject of whether witchcraft was real or not. Mm. So this is kind of like the historical backdrop 
where, you know, this issue of, like, witchcraft is, like, entering into uh, America. So, I'm going to read a little bit further, and then I'm going to hand it off to you. So, okay. in 1668, and against modern asceticism, Joseph Glanville claimed that he could prove the existence of witches and ghosts of the supernatural realm. Glanville wrote about the de- denial of the bodily resurrection and of supernatural spirits. In his treatise, Glanville claimed that ingenious men should believe in witches and apparitions. If they really doubted the reality of spirits, they not only denied demons, but also that of Almighty God. Glanville wanted to prove that the supernatural could not be denied. Those who did deny apparitions were considered heretics, for it also disproved their belief in angels. Works by men such as Glanville and Cotton Mather tried to prove that demons were alive. So you have very influential people who have this worldview that, nah, this shit's real, and if you don't believe in it, you are essentially denying Christianity. Yeah. So I'm gonna hand it's this. Very, I'm gonna it's hand so this back weird. To you. Okay, yeah, it's so weird to me because these people are so focused on the devil, on evil. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on, what? <laughs> why do you care about the devil if Jesus is so powerful? Like, come on, man. No shit. And so, <laughs> and so uh, this guy, um, Cotton Mather, he wrote this book. Like you said, he wrote that book. Um, the wonders of the invisible world being an account of the trials of several witches lately executed in new england and this guy was a doctor <laughs> yeah harvard we're talking harvard and so uh, so this guy um and not, and by the way we're not saying he's stupid or anything we're just saying this is what they believed back in the day this is what the educated people believe back in the day so we're not calling anybody stupid here and so uh i want to give y'all a little spooky Spooky story, I guess, uh, from <laughs> from this book, Wonders of the Invisible World, and this is uh, a narr- and, and this this story just goes to show you um, not only what these people believe, but also the type of evidence that these people collected to 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 claim that this stuff was true. Oh boy. And so there's a chapter in this book, uh, or uh, subtext, or whatever. I don't know if they had chapters, but wonders of the invisible world. And there is this narrative. And let me go here. Oh man, it blanked out on me. Here you go. A narrative of an apparition which a gentleman in Boston had of his own brother, just then murdered in London. All right. So I guess Cotton Mather uh, talked to this one guy whose brother was murdered. All right, so check this out. Here we go. Woo! It was the 2nd of May in the year 1687 that a most ingenious, accomplished, and well-disposed gentleman, a guy named uh, Joseph Beacon, about 5 o'clock in the morning, as he lay, whether sleeping or waking, he could not say. <laughs> But judge the latter of them, he had a view of his brother, who was then at London, although he was now himself at our Boston. So, yeah, that, this, his brother, him in the morning about five o'clock in Boston, having on him a 
bingo gown, I guess it's a uh, gown, which he usually wear with a napkin tied about his head. His appearance was very pale, ghastly, deadly, and he had a bloody wound on one side of his forehead. Brother, says Joseph, as Joseph says that he claimed, Brother, Brother Joseph, Brother, answered the apparition. Joseph, what's the matter, brother? How came you here? The apparition uh, replied. Brother, I have been most barbarously and injuriously butchered by a debauched, drunken fellow to whom I never did any wrong in my life. So Joseph then gives a description of the murderer, adding... Brother, this fellow changing his name is attempting to come over here in New England. I would pray that on the first arrival of, of this to get an order from the governor to seize this person whom I have described. And then do you indict this guy for murder of your brother? I'll stand by you and prove the indictment. And then suddenly his brother vanished. Ooh. Ooh. So, Mr. Joseph Beacon was extremely astonished at what he had seen and heard. And the people of the family not only observed an extraordinary change on him, but in the week following, they Joseph gave into their hands a full testimony of this and the ghost. So, basically, that paragraph... Uh, sorry for the... I was trying to adjust it in modern English. <laughs> oh, God. You had some yeah. work out of you. Uh, so this guy, Joseph, apparently he woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning and he saw his brother. And keep in mind, Joseph is in Boston. His brother was supposed to be in London, across the pond. And so <laughs> Joseph's like, dude, whoa, oh, 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 what are you doing over here? I thought you were in London. Are they Italian now? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, yo, what you doing? Get the fuck out of here. You're supposed to be in London. What are you doing over here? I'm trying to sleep, you son of a monkey. <laughs> you fucking animal. <laughs> so Joseph's like, dude, what are you doing over here? And his brother said, oh, and his brother, and his brother looks like a zombie, pale, ghastly. He's got a bloody wound on the side of his forehead. His brother says, oh, oh, Joseph, my brother, oh. He's like, Joseph, I've been killed, man, by this dude, this drunk dude. I didn't even do anything wrong to this guy. And he's like, this is what the dude looks like. And he's coming over here to New England. And when he comes, y'all better catch him. Here's what he looks like. <laughs> and Joseph's like, oh, okay. Okie dokie. <laughs> Joseph's like, dude, I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I I'm eager to know what happened after this. All right, so... So, would you say this... Because there's different kinds of evidence that they would use to... Uh, in matters of alleged witchcraft. Would you consider this a form of spectral evidence? Yeah, I suppose so. And we can't, we can't ignore the gender aspect. Because if this were a woman saying this... What do you think would happen? Mm, yeah... And, oh, you witch! And just so y'all know, spectral evidence is a form of legal evidence 
based on the testimony of those who claim to have experienced visions. So, you know, Ooh. like if you eat a fucking mushroom, right? You see some shit. Well, guess what? Back then, that's 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 legally <laughs> acceptable evidence in a court of law. Man, I was out in the woods and I, I had this mushroom, man. And the next thing I know, I, I'm back in town and I see like a fucking dragon just swoop in and like eat like 20 cows. Mm, I see. 20 cows, you say? And twas a dragon? Yes, actually. It might have been purple, even. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, that, that That's kind of like just one of the different forms of evidence that's floating around here. Yeah. Um, and also, too, by the way, this book he said, this book by Cotton Mather, it also talks about the Salem Witch Trials as well. And it goes by... Um, it has specific instances of trials of those who were accused. So yeah, this is an excellent primary source. Um, it's and this is where we get a lot of the uh, testimony and a lot of the uh, court examinations, too. So. All right. So we're building like a lot of like context here. So yeah. Should we get into you know? What exactly kicks it all off? What's the chain of events that begins this whole yeah. pop mess? Well, yeah, yeah. So um, where I'm at, uh, so you could follow along, is the reading like a historian document, and it's going to give a summary of the crisis. Thank you, Sanford History Education Group. Oh, yeah. And this is the primary. This this is some of the primary sources that we use also in history class. So. Because we got to teach the kids how to read like historians. And reading for, re reading like a historian is not just reading from a textbook. It's also reading the primary sources and coming up with um, our own arguments. Because history is argument. History is not that... History is not just about dates and facts and all that. History is about how do you interpret the evidence from the primary sources. Mm -hmm. That's history. Um, so, yeah. Um, do you want to go next? All right. So, do you want me to read the first paragraph here? Uh, yeah. Well, you get. Well, it get. This is a sh little short summary that'll give the readers uh, a, a quick little summary of what happened. Then we'll go to the more primary sources. Right. So, this is the series of events which gets the ball rolling. The Salem witchcraft crisis began during the winter of 1691 to 1692 in Salem Village, Massachusetts when Betty Paris, the nine-year-old daughter of the village's minister, Samuel Paris, and his niece, Abigail Williams, fell strangely ill. Ooh. The girls complained of pinching, prickling sensations, knife-like pains, and the feeling of being choked. Oh. In the weeks that followed, three more girls showed similar symptoms. Reverend Paris and several other doctors began to suspect that the witchcraft was responsible for the girl's behavior. They pressed the girls to name the witches who were tormenting them. The girls named three women who were then arrested. The third accused was Paris's native slave, Tituba. <laughs> Mind you, slavery is still being practiced, by the way, here. Um, yeah. The Puritans loved them some slavery. 
Under examination, Tituba confessed to being a witch and testified that four women and a man were causing the girl's illness. Oh boy. The girls continue to accuse people of witchcraft, including some respectable church members. The new accused witches joined Tituba and the other two women in jail. The accused face a difficult situation. If they confess to witchcraft, they could escape death, but would have to provide details of their crimes and the names of other participants. On the other hand, it was very difficult to prove one's innocence. The Puritans believed that witches knew magic and could send spirits to torture people. Ugh. However, the visions of torture could only be seen by the victims. <laughs> the, so, remember, mind you what I said about spectral evidence. These visions of torture could probably be used as legal evidence in a court back at this time. The afflicted girls and women were often kept in the courtroom as evidence while the accused were examined. If they screamed and claimed that the accused witch was torturing them, the judge would have to believe their visions even if the accused witch was not doing anything visible to the girls. Between June and October, 20 people were convicted of witchcraft and killed and more than a hundred suspected witches remained in jail. So that's kind of a brief summary of what begins this whole mass hysteria. This is sounding to me like some social media stuff before social media. This is like Hewan. This is Pizzagate before you had Pizzagate. Well, I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about, uh, do y'all remember a few years back when uh, the movie It came out and suddenly you seen on social media and you seen on, uh, there, was no, there was no TikTok yet. This was like when the young kids were doing Instagram and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you remember when there were all these pictures and all these uh, memes about, oh, I saw this clown appear over here. There's a clown that appeared over there. This, this, the, I mean, this is the kind of stuff. Didn't a dude get shot for doing that? <laughs> I don't know, but it would not surprise me. That'd be hilarious, though. Let me look at just... the Pinterest clown <laughs> shot. I'm like, what? Yeah, what this is hell? this is back in 2016, wasn't it? Whenever that movie came out, because I remember my students always talking about. It. I'm like, what are y'all? What are y'all talking about, man? Yeah, mass hysteria is a very interesting thing. Um, but yeah. there. I think there's more to the Salem witch trials than just hysteria. I think there's a lot of other new like contexts at play. Here. Oh yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of misogyny going on. Misogyny and, and generational as, clash. Yeah, and as this uh, document that we're reading implies, there might also be an economic one too. Okay. Because I'm looking at, I'm going a little bit ahead, so I'm looking at uh, evidence D, map of Salem village. Oh, okay, you're going there, okay. So, most people in Salem... So, when we're talking about Salem, there's actually kind of two Salems being discussed here. Uh, there's Salem Village, which is on the west side, and Salem Town, which is on the east side. Most people in Salem Village were farmers, whereas most people in Salem Town were merchant, merchants and townspeople. Oh. 
the residents of Salem Village had to pay taxes to Salem Town. Oh, man. What? What? And not only that, the map... Your food, motherfucker. What? Yeah. So not only that. So there's a map, you know, displayed here. The map shows that most of the people who made accusations were from Salem Village. Oh. So the majority of these accusations are coming from, you know, people out in the country. So could there possibly be like a financial incentive for some people to actually accuse some folks of witchcraft? Well, I'd be angry if I were in the village and I were a farmer and not only am I providing food for you, working my butt off, breaking my back, letting the sweat of my brow touch the ground and my farm implements, you also want me to pay tax to you? Plowing the soil. I'm plowing the soil, baby. Maybe the taxes was in the form of food, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Imagine using, like, accusations of witchcraft as a form of class warfare, though. <laughs> Yo, my landlord's a fucking witch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw him consorting with the fucking devil. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. My manager, I saw him consorting with the devil. Yeah, that's interesting, though, if you say that. Class warfare, huh? It's really, really... Yeah. And there's, like, another thing, too... Uh, this is another thing of evidence, which kind of might present like an argument or like a economic context, right? So it's actually like a graph of uh, family farms. So before the Salem witch trials, um, the total number of acres, you know, the size of a family farm in Salem Village is at its peak is in 1660, right? Around 250 acres on average for a family farm. Pretty fucking big. But as time, oh, yeah. as time goes on throughout the decades, up until 1690, that number of acres starts to decline mm, to like okay. 150 to about like 125 maybe acres mm. for the average size of family farm. So what is that kind of pointing to, I wonder? If we com- if we look at this data and combine it, you know, with the data of, you know, the Salem village versus the Salem town folks. Mm. Because if people are paying, you know, like taxes to the people in Salem town, I'm assuming also that the some of the folks in Salem town might be landowners themselves i don't know oh so you th- oh yeah that's an interesting question too did the people in salem town own the land on which the farmers worked on in salem village that's interesting as well so yeah and we see a total we see a decline over the decades leading up to the salem witch trials and the total amount of acres uh that were this that was the average size of a family farm in salem village Mm. Yeah, so does that mean the farmers are losing their land? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, I wonder if these primary sources have anything to say about that. Because the ones that I'm finding, the one by Cotton Mather and the one by, um, oh boy, I don't know how to say this guy's name, but Diodat or Diodat Lawson? Let me put the name in the, well, let me put the primary source here in the chat for you. 
Um, but yep. this is so this primary source is from famous um, famous what is that like a famous trials dot com but, the, but 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 between famous and trials there's a uh, what was that called between famous and trials I'm not yeah so go to the URL I'm not seeing anything <laughs> oh did I post it in the chat yeah you post I'm on the website right now I just don't know exactly what you're talking about because I, I see everything right here Oh, yeah, no, what I'm saying, I got this from FamousTrials.com, but look up in the URL. Be, be, if anybody on the pi out there wants to go to this, um... You can just type in Famous-Trials.com oh. slash, slash Salem. So okay. this was produced by Professor Douglas O. Linder, who we've actually examined this guy before we actually started recording. He actually has a very... He's a professor of law, if I remember right, but he's okay. also written a number of works uh, historically, and a lot of the historical work he's produced actually involve um, famous trials throughout history. Like oh, he shit, goes, this is an awesome website. This dude goes back all the way to the trial of Socrates. Oh, so yeah, like trial of Socrates, Gaius Verus trial, the trial yeah. of Jesus. Um, medieval oh trials, trial of Jean d'Arc. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh! And it and it goes all the way up to the George Floyd murder trial. Oh my God, he does. Yeah, George Zimmerman oh, as well. It's yeah. The world as well. It's not just American history, but yeah, this dude is you know a professor of law. Nelson Mandela. His... Oh man. So. We can say this is a pretty credible source that we're going off here. <laughs> Holy shit, this is an awesome website. Famous Trials. I'm saving, I'm bookmarking this mug. So, yeah, the thing that you showed me here is a yeah. report by Diodat Lawson on witchcraft in Salem. Um, yeah. Thankfully, it is actually translated into proper English <laughs> and not this yeah. crap. Um, whew. So, do you want me to start reading some of the stuff? Yeah, well, I was thinking, instead, because there, there's a lot to cover, I was thinking instead of reading, let's pull out the more, I guess, important parts, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so Lawson is writing, uh, It pleased God in the year of our Lord, 1692, to visit the people of a place called Salem Village in New England. Um, and he calls it a very sore and grievous affliction. Um, in which they had reason to believe that the sovereign and holy God was pleased to permit Satan and his instruments to basically cause havoc here. Um, so Lawson is writing, I having for some time attended the work of ministry in that village. Oh, so this is a pretty good primary source. So he says, yeah, all of this stuff came to my notice. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I noticed this stuff. He's like, this really came to my notice because the first person afflicted was in the minister's family who succeeded me after I was re I was removed from them. Mm. Um, wow, okay. And so he was much more concerned about them, and this is kind of what got his... Um, this is what got him involved. Oh, boy. And let's see here. I did, I did then desire and was also desired by some concern in the court to be there present that I might hear what was alleged in that respect. Um, and therefore, when I was amongst them, 
that the case of the afflicted was very amazing and deplorable. Okay, so this is interesting. Uh, he's calling... He, so he's using these adjectives, amazing and deplorable. So this is definitely seeming to me like a spectacle, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't want to say that these people are putting on a show, but if they are, they're great showmen. They have good showmanship skills. <laughs> they got this dude convinced. Yeah. Um... And so one or two of the first that were afflicted complains of unusual illness. Uh, their relations use psychic, use physic for their cure. I don't know what that means. Um, so he says they were often, they were oftentimes very stupid in their fits. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't think he means the word way we use it. Yeah. And they were often, I think he means mute. So they were often stupid in their fits and can neither hear nor understand in the apprehension of the uh, people standing by. Um, and he goes on. It was several times observed that when they were discoursed with about God or Christ or the things of salvation, um, they were presently afflicted at a dreadful rate. Oh, okay, so I, I guess he's saying, um, so whenever the talk of, talk of God or Christ came up, that's when their affliction started or got worse mm -hmm. yeah so you know just mentioning god or christ and then suddenly they're going whoa i don't like that yeah and uh, and all through the time too um he i don't know of what people he's talking about so he says yeah i'm not sure what people he's talking about i guess he's talking about those uh afflicted but I'm not sure if they were the girls or the women. Oh, I'm not sure. Um, oh, here's some spooky stuff. Ooh, here we go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they affirm that they saw the ghosts of several departed people who at their appearing did instigate them to discover, such as they said, were instruments to hasten their deaths, threatening sorely to afflict them if they did not make it to the judges. <laughs> they did affirm at the examination and again at the trial of an accused person that they saw the ghosts of his two wives to whom he had carried very ill in their lives uh, provided by Sarah. I'm not sure what that says. And Testimonies. also that they saw the ghost of my wife and daughter who died three years before. Okay, so... And they did affirm that when these when the very ghost looked on the prisoner at the bar, as if blood would fly out of their faces with indignation at them. Yeah, their faces so, would get like really red, according to this guy. So, we're seeing ghosts here. We're seeing afflictions. Um, in the in this persecution by the dragoons of hell, the persons afflicted were harassed at such a dreadful rate to write their names in a devil book presented by a ghost unto them or a specter unto them and one in my hearing said i will not i will not write it is none of god's book it is the devil's for i ought to know and when they steadfastly refused to sign they were told if they would but touch or take hold of the book it should do and lastly the diabolical propositions were so low and easy that if they would but let their clothes or any other thing about them touch the book they should be at ease from their torments so 
I guess a ghost is presenting a book to them? <laughs> I think it's... Um, that's a really interesting question, actually. So it's either like a ghost or like a specter or like an evil spirit. Crazy. Because it's a book of, you know, the devil. We could assume that this entity is probably demonic in nature. Hmm. Also, Dragoons of Hell. That's that's a badass name. <laughs> Dragoons of Hell. That's, like a, that's a biker gang, man. <laughs> um, I'm going further down here. Um, see right here. Because a lot of this is just about, more about, you know, what these... So we say that these people underwent fits. They were... What, hold on. What did that? Uh, what did we read up there? So that they they went through fits or they were ill. This is the kind of stuff, y'all, that they're talking about when they say these people were ill. So it's not just oh these people were sick. No, 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 no. This seems to me to be more like mental illness. I guess. Maybe. It's yeah. That, maybe that's maybe. assuming they're not just making shit up. Making shit up. Yeah. Um, because remember, the thing that kind of got this ball rolling was, you know, some accusation by teenage girls. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, and here, and here's another good example of a fit. Um, yeah. Check this out. Sometimes in their fits, they, had, they have had their tongues drawn out of their mouths to a fearful length. Their heads turned very much over their soldier, so, shoulders and... And while they have been so strained in their fits, had their arms and legs, etc., rested as if they were quite dislocated, the blood has gushed plentifully out of their mouths for a considerable time together. Very interesting, right? That's some horror movie stuff, right? Your tongue, you know, it's like Freddy Krueger in Nightmare on Elm Street, right? The tongue comes out of the phone. Yeah. <laughs> so, their eyes. Oh, I saw this one. Their eyes were, for the most part, fast closed in their transfits, and when they asked a question, they could give no, give no answer. And I do verily okay. believe they did not hear at the time. Yet did they discourse with the specters as with real persons, asserting things and receiving answers affirmative or negative as the matter was. For instance... One in my hearing thus argued with and rallied at a specter. Goodne, <laughs> Gooden, be gone. Good. I think he's like about to say good night or whatever, but then she says, "Be gone, be gone, be gone." Are you not ashamed, a woman of your profession, to afflict a poor creature so? What hurt did I ever do to you in my life? You have but two years to live, and then the devil will torment your soul for this. <laughs> your name is blotted out of God's book, and it shall never be put into God's book again. Be gone for shame. Are you not afraid of what is coming upon you? I know, I know what will make you afraid. The wrath of an angry God. <sighs> I am sure that will make you afraid. Be gone. Do not torment me. I know what you would have. Damn. That's that's not even the whole quote. That's just like half of the fucking quote. I can't read the rest because it's too long. Um, <laughs> so, some 
Some of them were asked how it came to pass that they were not affrighted when they saw. The fuck? <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh, some of them were asked how it came to pass that they were not affrighted when they saw the black man. <laughs> this is is this is a proper noun. It's capitalized. They said they were at first, but not so much afterwards. W wait a minute, did I miss something? Yeah, hold on. I'm control F and where is black man here? All right. So the first instance, this is the first instance where we see the black man mm -hmm. in this primary source. Th so this who is, is this, this black man? I don't fucking know. <laughs> I hope it's not an actual like. I don't think. I think it's more like a, like a shadow. Like, like a, a sh yeah, a shadow person. You know, like a shade. Yeah. Some of them affirmed that they saw the black man sit on the gallows and that he whispered in the ears of some of the condemned persons when they were just ready to be turned off, even while they were making their last speech. Oh, okay. So ghost, I guess. Some of them. Have sundry times seen a white man appearing amongst the specters? So these are these are ghosts. And as soon okay. as <laughs> I, I hope these are just ghosts. As, <laughs> as soon as he appeared, the black witches vanished. They said this white man had often foretold them what respite they should have form their fits. As sometimes a day or two or more which fell out accordingly. One of the afflicted said she saw him in her fit and was with a glorious place which had no candle or sun. It was full of light and brightness. There we go. Where there was a multitude in white glittering robes and they sang the song and song, uh, it's a passage from Psalms. Yes, it's heaven, baby. She was loth to leave the place and said, How long shall I stay here? Let me be along with you. She was grieved when she could stay no longer in that place and company. So while she's having... It sounds like this is being followed... These fits are being followed up by, like, euphoria? Assuming yeah. it's not all just, like, an act? Yeah. Let's see here. I don't want to spend too much time on the source, but some of it is actually yeah. very interesting. Oh, no, yeah, this is because this gets us into the mindset of what these people believe back then, man. Yeah, this is a report by, you know, a primary source. Also, the fact that they said black man and there was no racial connotation there. Yeah, well, I, it was. We don't know. I don't know, but I think it's in reference to like a spirit, you know? Yeah. A young woman that was afflicted at a fearful rate had a specter appear to her with a white sheet wrapped around it, not visible to the standers-by, until the sufferer, violently striving in her fit, snatched at, took gold, and tore off a corner of that sheet. Her father, being by her in Denver, endeavored to lay hold upon it with her, that she might retain what she had gotten. But, at the passing away of the specter, he had such a violent twitch of his hand, as if it would have been torn off. Immediately thereupon appeared in the sufferer's hand the corner of a sheet, a real cloth, visible oh. to the spectators, which, as it is said, remains still to be seen. 
Oh, she tried to pull a Nancy Thompson in Nightmare on Elm Street. You remember when she came out the dream and had Freddy's hat? I think I know what you mean. Yeah. So, so we have like this not, is this is creepy shit. I'm I'm creeped out right now, man. I'm glad we're reading this in here. This is great. This is. Well, I'm freaky. Out. Why the hell am I gonna sleep tonight? <laughs> well, it's it's spooky month. What do you expect? I'm gonna oh. I'm gonna skip ahead a few more because a lot of it are reports of you know some of the weirder shit. Uh, let me see here. Da, 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 da. A young woman. I already read that. A woman being brought upon public examination desired to go to prayer. The magistrates told her that they came not there to hear her pray, but to examine her in which what was alleged against her relating to suspicions of witchcraft. It was observed both in times of examination and trial that the accused seemed little affected with what the sufferers underwent or was charged against them as being the instruments of Satan therein, so that the spectators were grieved at their unconcernedness. They were accused by the sufferers of keep days of hellish fasts and thanksgivings, and upon one of their fast days, they told a sufferer she must not eat. It was a fast day. She said she would. They told her they would choke her then, which were which which she did eat was endeavored. What? So, what the fuck did I just read? <laughs> they were accused <laughs> hellish fasts and thanksgiving. Okay, so the sub... The people who are making the accusations are accusing uh, this woman, or yeah, I think it's this woman, of essentially participating in these like satanic like fasts, you know, well, okay. or Thanksgivings, you know, feasts, right? Okay. They were also yeah. yeah they were also accused to hold and administer diabolical statements or they were also accused to hold and administer diabolical sacraments, sacraments. there you sacraments, go viz a mock baptism and a devil supper at which cursed imitations of the sacred institutions of our blessed lord they used forms of works to be trembled at in the very rehearsing hmm. at their cursed supper they were said to have red bread and red drink. Red drink. And when they pressed an afflicted person to eat and drink thereof, she turned away her head and spit at it and said, I will not eat. I will not drink. It is blood. It is not the bread of life. That is not the water of life. And I will have none of yours. Thus horribly doth Satan endeavor to have his kingdom and administrations to resemble those of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. So here are the accusations of, you know, like satanic rituals, you know, uh, things that like mock Christian ones and imitate it, like the Eucharist, you know, mass and so on and so forth. Hmm. Spooky. <laughs> oh, Yeah. I think so let's go on here to uh, yeah. how would Cotton Mathers, let's go to evidence A, how would Cotton Mathers 
uh, prove that this all exists. That this is real. All right, so what source are you looking at? The Salem Evidence A. Okay. The reading, yeah, like a historian. All right, Discourse on Witchcraft. This is hilarious. <laughs> so he's making in this... It's a, spe- it's a segment from a speech. Um, memorable providences relating to witchcrafts and possessions from a discourse on witchcraft. And it's kind of like... Like we just said, it's like a segment from that where he's trying to make an argument uh, to prove that witchcraft is real. You want to read it? Oh, yeah. So this, ladies and gentlemen, watch this. Would this stand up in court today? Here we go. He says, I will prove that witchcraft exists. Those who deny that it exists argue that they never saw any witches therefore there are none that would be as if you or i said we never met any robbers therefore there are none okay i have two pieces of evidence that witchcraft exists first the scripture mentions witchcraft secondly many people have experienced the horrors of witchcraft Wow. That's it. <laughs> That's it. What kind of shitty ass burden of <laughs> standards are you working with, buddy? Yeah, the good point. <laughs> like, this is a guy who does not know what, like, a burden of proof means. Yeah. And I, see, I want to I wanna diss him, but I'm like, he was one of the most educated guys in his time. Yeah, given, and- the, <laughs> given the time... That this yeah. man, he's a product of his times. He's I, he's yeah. working with, as far as he knows, what is real and demonstrable. <laughs> Doesn't pass the smell test now, but back <laughs> no. then, he's a lot of people would probably say, "Oh, this is actually a very compelling argument," even though yeah. it, it really isn't. So, like the Bible says so, and many people also have said so. Well, the Bible also <laughs> mentions a talking donkey, and I haven't seen any fucking donkeys that start talking. Yeah. <laughs> so this oh, this boy. is just like one of the tidbits that he's yeah. using to persuade people that witchcraft is really real. I, man, I'm the more I learn about this Salem stuff, the more I'm just thinking, you know. Ooh, man, there's so much... Oh, man, so much. We could do a lot of episodes about this, but... I don't know. We just wanted to focus on the more spooky parts of it, I guess, today. Right. So let's move on to the testimony of a character by the name of Abigail Hobbs, who I will explain more about after we read this testimony. So, yeah, And then we'll do a back and forth. You could be the judge or Abigail. I'll be Abigail. You get to be the judge. <laughs> All right. Oh, so you want me to start now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is uh, below is a test. This is a test. Short little testimony of the teenager Abigail Hobbs accused of witchcraft on April nineteenth, sixteen ninety two. I'm the judge. He'll be Abigail. Here we go. <laughs> Abigail Hobbs, you are brought before authority to answer to various acts of witchcraft. 
What say you? Are you guilty or not? Speak the truth. I will speak the truth. I have seen sights and have been scared. I have been very wicked. I hope I shall be better if God will help me. What sights did you see? I have seen the devil. How often? Many times? But once. What would he have you do? Why, he would have me be a witch. Oh, would he have you make a covenant with him? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's well, that's all the document is citing from. But. I I know, but I also wanted to make her sound like an English street urchin. Is you me bum? I want the full. Uh, we looked for the full testimony of this, but we could not find it online. That's so. Where weird, is this yeah. testimony? No kidding. What the hell? Damn it. Test. I'm sure. Oh, Abigail. I'm sure there's a fuller version of this. Dude, this is like reminding me of Dr. Phil. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Imagine Dr. Phil. He's a Puritan. Oh, good news. I actually did find. I found one. I've been looking for like 30 minutes before the podcast. Where the heck did you go? I just Googled uh, testimony of Abigail Hobbs and it's literally the first thing I found. No, no. I would have. No, no, no. Here it is. (laughs) There it is. It's right there. I just I shared that oh, fucking man. link. You oh, see, see how hard it is, ladies and gentlemen, to do like primary source historical. Oh, oh, this is nice. This is a lot more in depth. Oh yeah. So, oh yeah. So, wow, this is a lot more. The thing is, that, this is so poorly formatted that you don't know really who is actually saying what. Oh yeah. Which Damn it's it. like, why did you, why did you guys format it like this? This sucks. Damn it. Well, let's see here. So Hobbes. So Abigail. Yeah, because it says Ab. What in the hell is happening? Speak the truth. I will speak the truth. God will keep. What side did? You- oh, yeah. No, this this is actually. Oh my gosh, this is so confusing. Yeah. Like if you, all right, so you out there, y'all, in podcast land, we're at salem.lib.virginia.edu. Um, it's a website so called I, Salem Witch Trials Documentary Archive and Transcription Project. Well, they didn't transcribe this shit very well. What I'm so saying, because they, so like, say the judge, the judge is asking a question, right? And in the very next sentence, they don't even break it up into lines. It's just the very next sentence is Abigail answering yeah it's It's, yeah it's like a big paragraph with questions and then answers and then questions and then answers yeah so before we actually talk about who abigail hobbs is i kind of want to read one more document from the site and it's yeah uh if you scroll down you're gonna see a it should say indictment of abigail hobbs for covenanting Oh, yeah, yeah. On the same, on the Virginia.edu one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I this is... Annotation. Oh, oh, for afflicting Mary Lewis. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, covenanting. Okay. So, this is from September 10th, 1692. From the Essex... It's from Essex in the province of the Massachusetts Bay and New England. 
Um, some other bullshit we don't care about. The jurors for our sovereign lord and lady, the king and queen, do present that Abigail Hobbs of Topsfield in the county aforesaid single woman in the year of our lord 1688 and Casco Bay in the province of Maine in New England, wickedly and feloniously a covenant with the evil spirit the devil did make contrary to the peace of our sovereign lord and lady, the king and queen, their crown and dignity, and the form of the statute in that case made and provided. So it's basically just a brief description and very ye old the charge. English. Yeah, okay. yeah, of the indictment of Abigail right. Hobbs. Okay. And yeah, there's so much, great. just like testimony, dispositions. Yeah, this is, yep. Um, oh my. Is there hey, like, you know what? We're teaching the people out there how do you conduct historical research? There you go. Prepare for ye old English, by the way. <laughs> so, who was Abigail Hobbs? We've been talking a lot about Abigail Hobbs. Well, Abigail is kind of a very important figure. Um, she's actually one of the first people accused in the Salem Witch Trials. So she was a teenage girl, about 14, 16 years old, when she was arrested for witchcraft on April 18, 1692, along with Giles Corey, Mary Warren, and Bridget Bishop. Prior to living in Salem Village, she and her family lived in Falmouth, Maine, the frontier of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, during a time when there were many attacks by the Wabanaki Native Americans. Mm. Her father and mother, Deliverance Hobbs, were also both charged with witchcraft. During her multiple examinations by local magistrates between April and June 1692, Abigail confessed and accused others of witchcraft, including John Proctor. At her trial in September, she pleaded guilty to both indictments against her, one for afflicting Mercy Lewis, and another one for covenanting with the devil, the indictment we just read. Yeah. In her examination on April 20, 1692, Abigail Hobbs accused George Burroughs, the previous minister of Salem, of being a witch. With the naming of Minister Burroughs, a well-respected member of the community, many accusations came forth and climbed up the social hierarchy. So we have people like all the way from like the bottom rungs accusing the higher ups in society mm. okay. um, of witchcraft. Governor William Phillips granted the Hobbs family a reprieve in January 1693 after Chief Magistrate William Stoughton had signed the warrant for her execution. In 1710, her father, William Hobbs, petitioned the general court to compensate him for 40 pounds expenses that the family's imprisonment cost him, but said he was willing to accept 10 pounds, which the court granted him in 1712. She was among those named in the Act for Reversal of Attainder by the Massachusetts Great and General Court, October 17, 1711. Doesn't really explain why. So that's kind of all there is that I can find about Abigail. Mm. Yeah, no, but that's interesting that you mentioned the whole class thing again. Right. Because so, I mean, 
so what oh i'm sorry because she was from salem she was living in salem village right oh was she as uh, opposed to salem town let me pull her back up just when i fucking <laughs> Let me pull that up. Do to do to do, do. I'm pretty sure I just read that she was from Salem. Dang nabbit. Why did I? <laughs> Why did I? Oh, I don't know. I guess it's not super important. But if mm. she was from Salem, uh, Salem Village, that would definitely follow from what we just learned about, right? between the majority of these accusations being levied yes. from people in Salem Village to Salem Town. Yeah. Yeah, she lived in Salem Village. Oof. Man, I feel like, too, we haven't even scratched the surface of Salem, you know? Oh, in boy. terms of the misogyny going on, in terms... Of, well, we talked a little bit about the class. Yeah. But in terms of... You know, the actual trials, what happened there. Man, woof. But yeah, so she and her cousin, Betty Paris, were like, kind of like got the ball rolling with these, uh, ac you know, these yeah. accusations. Uh, let me pull up the timeline, because I think we can go for another 15 minutes if you're down. Uh, yeah, we can do that. Okay. So the outbreak of the accusations begins in 1692 with... Oh, yeah. And it... Oh. Yeah. No, yeah, it all began in Salem uh, in January of 1692 when a group of young girls um, fell ill after playing a fortune-telling game. See? You mess with the occult. You don't know what's on the other side. Don't open that door. According to that guy. See, I, see, I'm crazy like that, man. Not crazy, but I don't know. I don't know, man. So Won't do it. <laughs> and there's also actually some stuff prior to that too, before the outbreak of these accusations, right? So if you go back to 1688, I'm on an article called The Timeline of the Salem Witch Trials, if you want to Google that one. Um, okay. Preceding the initial outbreak in 1688, the behavior of several children in the home of the Goodwood family in Boston results in the first accusation, trial, and execution of their Irish washerwoman, Anne Glover, also known as Goody Glover, for witchcraft. <laughs> Cotton Mather, in 1689, publishes memorable providences <laughs> relating to witchcrafts and possessions, which includes his account of the Godwins and Glover. November of the same year, Samuel Paris is named the new minister of Salem, Paris moves to Salem from Boston, where Memorable Providences was published. 1691, October 16th, the villagers vow to drive Paris out of Salem and stop contributing to a salary. Man, hmm. who he, wait, who did he piss off? <laughs> I know, you? the politics going on, man. Some beef. Deep. So I'm reading on his... Uh, page right now. Salem Village was a contentious place to live and was known to be quarrelsome by neighboring towns and villages. Its dispersed settlement pattern may have resulted in a lack of sense of common purpose that may have united more orderly and arranged communities. Samuel Paris was the fourth minister appointed in a series of unsuccessful attempts to keep a permanent minister. 
James Bailey and George Burroughs each stayed only a few years, departing after their congregation failed to pay their full rates. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Because guys gotta make a living. Yeah. Diodat Lawson left with less contention. Remember, we just read his accounts, his reports. Yeah. Fur- yeah. Further tension was caused by Paris's delay in accepting the position and his inability to resolve his parishioners' disputes. There were also other disputes over Paris's compensation. In October 1691, the town decided to stop paying his wages. These issues and others that were more personal between the villagers continued to grow unabated. So, there's beef in this place. There's beef for everybody. Man. The events which led to the Salem witch trials began with Paris's daughter, Betty, and her cousin, Abigail Williams. Accused Paris... Or... Yeah, it began when Paris's daughter, Betty, and her cousin, Abigail Williams, accused Paris's slave, Tituba, of witchcraft. Mm. Paris beat Tituba until she confessed herself a witch, and John Indian, her husband, began accusing others. The the delusions... I will say, after this sentence, it does say citation needed and dubious discuss. So, grain of salt on that last line. The delusion spread, many were apprehended, and most of whom were imprisoned. During their 16-month duration of the Salem Witch Trials phenomenon, 19 persons were hanged. So, that's kind of like a lot of the stuff that happens even before Abigail Williams and Elizabeth Paris, you know, start to act out in this way. Mm. So Yeah, and they could be responding to socio-political events, like you mentioned. Right. So, here's a little bit more of the timeline here. So, mid-February of 1692, a local doctor, historically assumed to be Dr. Griggs, attends to the afflicted girls, and the first suggests that witchcraft may be the cause. So, this guy is kind of like providing some confirmation to this belief. This Dr. Griggs. Yeah. Yeah. So, that same month, Mary Sibley, a neighbor of the Paris family, instructs John Indian, the husband of Tituba, to make a witch cake, whatever that is, of rye meal and the girl's urine to feed to a dog in order to discover who is bewitching the girls according to English folk white magic practices. That sounds like some shit white people would do. It's like, okay, you go take this rye meal and you take my daughter's piss and you give it to that dog to find out who's bewitching my daughters. Mr. John Indian, sir. Yeah, John Indian and like... What? These these are some names, let me tell you. She is later called out by Reverend Paris for this and her expression of regret is accepted by the congregation. It's like, I'm sorry, I fed my dog piss and rye <laughs> Pressured by ministers and townspeople to say who caused her odd behavior, Elizabeth Paris identifies Tituba. Oh, God, they're pinning the blame on a black woman, okay? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. The girls later accused Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good of witchcraft. Also, Tituba, I, I am mistaken. She was actually not... I don't think she's African. Uh, I think... Oh, their origins are kind of unknown. 
but okay. they came but may, they may have come from central or south america oh yeah yeah and uh yeah because um i think well i, I don't know i don't know what the primary sources say about like a voodoo doll or the C- caribbean um well that's a well well hold on for our audience out there um that's a extremely important point though to make about uh the transatlantic slave trade that brought kidnapped indigenous indigenous west africans um to the north america central america and south america uh, regions uh most of those uh kidnapped west and west africans they did not come to what we know now as the united states of america they came mostly to brazil mostly to the caribbeans so very and, interesting point there and central america too yeah 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 um, yeah that's what i mean like uh caribbean and west indies or central yeah america yeah yeah so after these girls accuse two more people of witchcraft um this is all this is february 29th now this year based on formal complaints from joseph hutchinson thomas putnam edward putnam thomas preston and magistrates john hawthorne and jonathan corwin uh the two magistrates issue warrants to arrest sarah good sarah osborne and tutuba for afflicting elizabeth paris abigail williams and putnam jr and elizabeth hubbard of witchcraft so shit's getting real and this is happening in a very very short timeline because all that stuff that happened in february mid-february to the end of february we're in mm. we're in March now of sixteen ninety-two. So uh magistrates John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin interrogate Good, Osborne, and Tituba over the course of several days. Tituba confesses to inflicting and confirms Good and Osborne are her co-conspirators. So it sounds like she probably applied some torture, I'd imagine, to get this confession or pressed her like because well, it also s- goes to the um i mean it also goes to the misogyny too of this society yeah well even also if they didn't necessarily torture her like you have to prove you are not a witch like mm. it's not <laughs> the burden of the court in this case to prove you're not like you're not innocent and proved to you're not innocent until proven guilty in this court. Yeah. So, March 11th, Ann Putnam Jr. shows symptoms of affliction by witchcraft. Mercy Lewis, Mary Walcott, and Mary Lauren later alleged affliction as well. March 12th, Ann Putnam Jr. also accuses Martha Corey of witchcraft. March 19th, Abigail Williams accuses Rebecca Nurse as a witch. Jesus, these girls are accusing fucking everybody of witchcraft. March 21st, magistrates Hawthorne and Corwin examine Martha Corey. Oh my God, there's so much accusations just in March. <laughs> I'm not going to read literally air, like all well, of them. This, is, this town is, it's very, it's heavily divided. Yeah, the beef is burning. Mm. So, March 23rd, Salem Marshal Deputy Samuel Brabuck 
arrests four-year-old Dorothy. Good. What the fuck? What do you mean arrest a four-year-old? Four oh, you're coming with me, little girl. What? March, <laughs> March 24th. Corwin and Hawthorne examine Rebecca Nurse and Dorothy Good. March 26, John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin and Reverend John Higginston question Dorothy Good, now in jail. Wait, she fucking four-year-old, though. What? She's, this girl's, like, only four years old. She's being interrogated by fucking magistrates. She's the youngest oh. in the trials, accused of witchcraft. I hate, I hate this society. I hate the fucking Puritans. This society is a fucking nightmare. <laughs> this society is fucking wicked. Oh, and if, if I can go off on a political rant, I mean, this is what they want to go. This is what these right wingers want to go back to. I mean, there's one guy, John Doyle, who basically said that America was better under the, you know, it was great under the fucking Puritans. Their society <laughs> was more moral than ours. I, I don't see how this can be moral, locking up a four year old. <laughs> and no kidding. And they're in fucking jail. So March 28th, Elizabeth Proctor, wife of John Proctor, is accused of witchcraft. So now we're in April of this fucking year. We are halfway through this timeline, baby. We're, we're knocking this shit out. April 3rd, Sarah Cloyce, after defending her sister, Rebecca Nurse, is accused of witchcraft. So this girl who is coming to defense of another girl is also accused of fucking witchcraft. April 11th, Sarah Cloyce and Eliz Elizabeth Proctor are examined before Deputy Governor Thomas Danforth and members of the Governor's Council. On the same day, Elizabeth's husband, John Proctor, becomes the first man accused of witchcraft and is jailed. Early, this is also kind of like mid-early April. The Proctor's servant and accuser, Mary Warren, admits to lying and accuses the other girls of lying. So this is where we got some girls spilling the tea. Where she's like, yeah, I'm not only making shit up, but also these girls are also making shit up too. Mm. But it doesn't it doesn't stop the accusations because April 13th, Anne Putnam Jr. accuses Giles Corey of witchcraft and alleges that a man who died at Corey's house also haunts her. So some <laughs> spectral evidence there. April 19th, Abigail Hobbs, girl whose uh, testimony we read, Bridget Bishop, Giles Corey, and Mary Warren are examined. Deliverance Hobbs confesses to practicing witchcraft. Mary Warren, under pressure, there's the key there, and accused now of witchcraft herself, reverses her statement made in early April and rejoins the, the accusers. So, and remember, Mary Warren is kind of flip-flopping here. Mary Warren is a servant to the Proctor household, just so we all remember. So she's she's going back and forth for probably pressure, because she was accused of witchcraft too. What's so like to get? In order to save their own skin, they're accusing others. Yeah. This is this is game theory too. Yeah, you see fucking game theory in action in this shit. Yeah. So April twenty second, Mary Eastie 
who defended her sister Rebecca Nurse, is examined by Hawthorne and Corwin. Hawthorne and Corwin also examine Nehemiah Abbott Jr., Sarah Wilds, William and Deliverance Hobbs, Edward and Sarah Bishop, Mary Black, and Mary English. April 30th, hey, my birthday. Several girls <laughs> accuse former Salem minister George Burroughs of witchcraft. And remember, George Burroughs was a very well-respected member of the community prior to this. He was a former minister. So now we're in the month of May. This is the final month of this timeline of accusations. This, this isn't even dealing with the prosecutions yet. This is like all... Everybody in this city has been... And not city, but in this place has been accused. Right. So I'm going to skip ahead to June. Because um, this is when we're getting into the prosecutions, right? So this goes from June to October of 1692. I'm not going to read all of them because, you know, time. June 2nd. Bridget Bishop is the first to be formally indicted, tried, and convicted of witchcraft. She is sentenced to death. June 10th, Bridget Bishop is hanged at Gallows Hill. June 16th, Roger Toothucker, Toothucker another guy accused of witchcraft, dies in prison. Uh, June 18 to 29, Sarah Good is tried and found guilty. June 29, Susanna Martin and Rebecca Nurse are tried and found guilty. June 30th, Elizabeth Howe is tried and found guilty. You can see a trend here. Well, I'm also seeing like a purge. Mm. And when I say purge, I don't mean the movie's purge. I mean mm. like Stalin purge. <laughs> right. Polit it's political killings, essentially. Yeah. Purging. Yeah. So, mind you, the first person uh, is already dead. Bridget Bishop. The first person executed for witchcraft. She's already dead on June 10th. Uh, on... Uh, in July of... Yeah, July 19, Sarah Good, Susanna Martin, Rebecca Nurse, Elizabeth Howe, and Sarah Wides are executed by hanging at Gallows Hill in Salem. So, we got several people who are now executed. Martha Carrier is tried and found guilty on August 3rd. August 4th, George Jacobs Sr. and John Willard are tried and found guilty. We're, we're seeing people being tried and found guilty who we didn't even fucking read off yet. We didn't, uh, I didn't even read off all the people who were found guilty. Yeah, I, I don't accused. remember them either. Yeah, because there's just so many. I just don't have time to name them all. August 4th, or I mean August 5th, George Burroughs, Elizabeth Proctor, and John Proctor are tried and found guilty. August 19th, Martha Carrier, George Jacobs Sr., John Willard, George Burroughs, and John Proctor are hanged on Gallows Hill. Mm. Elizabeth Proctor is temporarily spared execution because she's pregnant. Uh, I'm trying to skip names that I haven't read off before. September 8th, Martha Corey is tried and found guilty. Uh, September 9th, Mary Bradbury and Mary Eastie are tried and found guilty. Uh, Mary Parker and Margaret Scott, September 16th, tried and found guilty. September 17th, Abigail Falker Sr. is tried and found guilty. Margaret Scott, Wilmot Ridd, uh, Samuel Wardwell, Mary Parker, and Abigail Faulkner are sentenced hey. to hang. Abigail Faulkner is given a temporary stay of execution because she's pregnant. Rebecca, 
Earns, Mary Lacey Sr., and Foster, and Abigail Hobbs, key character there, plead guilty to the charges and await sentencing. September 19th. Giles Corey, a guy who I've named several times, is pressed to death for refusing to agree to be tried before God and country, i.e. a jury. So they just fucking kill that man. Yeah, he wasn't even convicted. Yeah, that's... Mm. So I'm trying to just... So a lot of people are being hanged at this point. Well, yeah. Yeah, I think we got it. Yeah. On October 3rd, the Reverend, who's kind of... I think he's the father of Cotton Mathers, a guy named the Reverend Increase Mathers, president of Harvard College and father of Cotton Mather, denounces the use of spectral evidence. So this guy's dad is coming in. It's like, yo, this evidence is bullshit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, eight children in custody on October 6th are released on 2,500 pounds pale. On a bail of 2,500 pounds. Oh my God. <laughs> on December 16th, an act is passed for the establishment of a superior court of assizes and general gallow delivery to convene in January and prosecute the remaining people in custody. So they're... Uh, okay, some people are actually being found not guilty at this point in 1693. Um, people like Sarah Buckley, Margaret Jacobs, uh, Mary Whiteridge, they're tried and found not guilty. Mary Tyler is tried and found not guilty. Um... Actually, it sounds like this thing might have been a good idea because people are, like, being found not guilty. Um, this whole convening and establishing of a superior court. Um, Mary Post is tried and found guilty. Mary Bridges Sr., Hannah Post, Sarah Bridges, and Mary Osgood are tried and found not guilty. Thomas Farr Sr. is cleared by proclamation. I'm trying to kind of get to names um, that we remember <laughs> Because we are almost done. Uh, Governor Phipps writes to England that 53 people have already been cleared, failing to be indicted by grand juries or found now not guilty at trial, and that he has vacated the death sentences of those who have been sentenced to be executed. Um, Seems like it's slowing down. It's nearing the end of yeah. you know this execution bit on may 10th susanna post eunice fryer mary bridges jr mary barker and william barker jr are tried and found not guilty sarah cole of salem dorothy faulkner abigail faulkner jr martha tyler jonathan tyler sarah wilson senior and sarah wilson jr are cleared by proclamation a grand jury fails to indict Tituba. Woo! She gets off. That is very surprising. I did not know that. <laughs> no, she, yeah. She she is not indicted by the grand jury. Hell yeah. <laughs> I wonder what John Indian, too. <laughs> I didn't see his name yet. <laughs> John Indian. <laughs> so, the aftermath. So, we're in like 1697 to like 1700s. January 14th, a general court declared a day of contrition for the hysteria and false accusations, for which there was fasting and praying for forgiveness. 1700, Abigail Faulkner Sr. requests that the Massachusetts General Court 
reverse the attender on her name. 1706, and this is the final entry. Anne Putnam Jr. stands before her church and offers an apology for her part in the witch trials. Sorry about that. So wait, that's uh, 15 years later. Yeah, after it's all said and done and like a bunch of people are fucking dead. Sorry if you can hear my dog. He's finally eating his food. He's fine. <laughs> Ain't that right, boy? So, wow. That was... That was a lot. Um, I'm going to read the aftermath and closure section just to kind of wrap things up. Although the last trial was held in May 1693, public response to the events continued. In the decades following the trials, survivors and family members and their supporters sought to establish the innocence of the individuals who were convicted and to gain compensation. In the following centuries, the descendants of those unjustly accused and condemned have sought to honor their memories. Events in Salem and Danvers, which was Salem Village before, in 1992 were used to commemorate the trials. In November 2001, years after the celebration of the 300th anniversary of the trials, the Massachusetts legislature passed an act exonerating all who had been convicted and naming each of the each of the innocent. The trials have figured in American culture and have been explored in numerous works of art, literature, and film. Damn, it took it took till 2001 to get them. To get them to do that? <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, I can believe it, though. <laughs> wow, so that's... That's basically the history of the witch trials. Yeah, I like, uh... Well, not only history of the witch trials, but also a pretty good example of... How do we navigate through all of these primary sources, right, to find the truth? Um, it's a lot yeah, of work. And, I, and yeah. mind you, we accumulated these sources in like an hour. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I wonder kind of what was the fate of many of the accusers, you know? Yeah. Like, wasn't one of them Abigail Williams? Let's see. Ay ay ay. So, what are your, what are your closing thoughts about this whole thing, about the Salem witch trials? Um. See, <laughs> my closing thoughts about it. See, the problem is, I'm very biased against against teenagers. So, <laughs> as one, you might be saying, as a teacher is, I guess. <laughs> So the way that I, what I'm thinking about is, I kind of see this as a, it's so, I hate to say social media, but it's sort of like these teenage girls are having power now to lock people up and they're abusing that power. So I don't know. I guess you can see, I don't, I mean, I, I people may say you're, it sounds like you're a misogynist. No. I just see it as teenagers being teenagers, I guess. And also added to it to this as well, toxic beliefs, uh, superstitious beliefs, which 
can be used to destroy the fabric of a society. That's why superstition and all that bullcrap, it doesn't need to be in the public sphere. So I, this is an example of that. Mm. That's the way I, that's the, so those are my closing thoughts about it. <laughs> so my closing thoughts are going to be about the fates of some of the accusers. You know, the girls who got this shit rolling. Namely, Abigail Williams and Betty Paris. So, after the events of the trials, after 1692, she fades from public record, actually. She just kind of just drops off the map. There's nothing known about her parentage or origins, and after 1692, Abigail Williams seems to again disappear from the record. And that is sourced from a book called A Storm of Witchcraft, The Salem Trials in the American Experience by Baker Emerson. So what about Betty Paris, the younger one? The younger one of the girls who got this nightmare train rolling. So life after the trials for Elizabeth or Betty Paris. In 1693... The Salem Witch Trials ended. Betty Paris never retracted her accusations or made any acknowledgments. Mm. In 1710, aged 27, she married Benjamin Barron, a yeoman, trader, cordwainer, and shoemaker. Her father still cared for her and her siblings. Paris, pr- Paris provided her with household stuff to better furnish her home with Benjamin. He bought her silver, money, and plate, as well as pictures and decor to hang on the walls. Hmm. She and Baron had four children, Thomas, Elizabeth, Catherine, and Susanna. Elizabeth survived her husband by six years, dying on March 21st, 1760, in Concord, Massachusetts, aged 77. Damn, that girl lives a long fucking time. Especially for back then, you know? Yeah. So, I think that puts this episode to rest. Wouldn't you say? Ooh. Yeah. Well, we got we got stuff. We got good stuff. I agree. So, I think to conclude this episode, I invite you all to follow our spooky Twitter at Ministry Modus. For more content and hot takes and updates on future episodes and our current episodes. Or you can reach out to our spooky email address at martinandcornbread at gmail.com. Send us some love. Send us some hate. Send us some skeletons. Send us some threats to turn us into skeletons. But don't accuse us of being witches. No. If you want to kill us, you can accuse us of being witches. Well, <laughs> accuse me of being one of the most superior human beings in the face of the planet. You wish. So, so that said, thank you once again, everybody, for joining us on this very spooky episode of Ministry Modus. We hope you have a safe and fun-filled Halloween. Martin, do you have any 
free-flowing rhymes that you want to take us out on. <laughs> they have to be spooky. Spooky rhymes. Uh, spooky rhymes, spooky rhymes, spooky rhymes. On the decline, if you know what I mean, then you're not lying. No, I have nothing. <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> All right. Au revoir, everyone.